This is the SEN Talks podcast from Galdard's SEN. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to our podcast with the wonderful Gemma Levy, um, Dr. Gemma Levy, who's an educational psychologist um, who we work with regularly, who our clients instruct regularly. And it's fantastic. Um, so she's going to be talking to us today about dyslexia um, and ADHD. We've also got Adam with us, everybody. All of you know uh, Adam, who's our partner um, and leader of our department at Gildard's NLP um, and who is also uh, as you all know severely dyslexic himself so today we're going to get the benefit um, of his experiences as well growing up um, and being educated um, with his dyslexia and how he's got to um, uh, where he is today so um Gemma if you could just uh, introduce yourself uh, to us and I'll, I'll not introduce you anyway but um if you could and I think the first question that I want to ask you is what is dyslexia because sometimes we hear dyslexia dyslexia, we've got dyslexia but we, we don't quite know you know if you've not if you don't know someone with dyslexia or you know you're not a teacher or you're not in this field I think sometimes I do get people saying what is it is it just you just can't spell is that just it and we sort of want to know that that's not quite what it is so if you could help us out with that yeah it's really true actually I hear that from my friends a lot and it's used in quite um colloquial kind of sense of just like oh I think I've got a bit of dyslexia just yeah. dropped into a conversation somewhere and you're like really um oh I should start and introduce myself so I'm Gemma I'm an educational psychologist and by default of meeting Adam a few years ago I kind of got dragged into the wonderful world of the legal world of educational psychology where um I've been supporting parents through the tribunal process and making sure that every child really gets the right support for their education which we'd hope would be a simple process but unfortunately isn't for so many families um so yeah I really really enjoy that side of this this world as well um so yeah dyslexia is a really interesting one because over time the definitions changed so when Adam for example was diagnosed the definition was different to the definition we use today and I think that's where some of the muddle in understanding has come from, because we keep changing what we mean by it. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, the definition that in the UK we go by for dyslexia is that reading or spelling is in the um, below average range and it's severe and persistent difficulty that has continued over time despite intervention. And that's really key because lots of children struggle with reading at the beginning and lots of children can struggle with spelling but quite often we put in an evidence-based intervention and then they make progress that doesn't mean they're dyslexic it means they struggled and they've made progress and now they're doing okay but a child with dyslexia will still struggle despite that intervention and despite being educated in a, a good school in the UK system where we have really great teachers they finding those key literature schools really hard to acquire so yeah it's it's not it's a it is more than just I find spelling a bit tough I, I mean from my point of view that's the one which always really annoyed me is um mm. you get a lot of people saying oh I'm a, I'm a bit dyslexic and you're mm. like I think there's a bit of a difference between maybe having a small struggle say at the beginning of your mm. kind of education 
to being in a situation where you really struggle to access the curriculum quite significantly. It's been some years, and, and you're going to have to forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but I did look years ago at the um, British uh, Dyslexia Foundation or Association's um, description of dyslexia, and I suppose the percentage of the, the, um, the population which are dyslexic. Mm -hmm. I think about 15% of the country is considered to be mm -hmm. dyslexic. Mm -hmm. Of that, there's about 5% which would be considered severely dyslexic. Um, and that's where I kind of sit in, in, the, in that kind of um, mm. pocket. Um, so a lot of children with dyslexia, as, as Gemma was saying, you, you can meet their needs within the classroom um, with differentiated opportunities and maybe some greater intervention through, say, a, a learning school assistant or maybe through the SENCO supporting them. And then you have students who you may have to have that EHC plan to ensure that they have dyslexia teaching coming into their school to support it um, and further learning opportunities and maybe support from a learning school assistant. And then you have your kind of severe range, which I kind of sat in at some stage, which um, was still sit in, which you can try all the intervention you like within a mainstream school, that person's not going to make meaningful kind of progress. And with those types of students, they may have additional needs as well in other areas. But they're the kind of students, from my experience, you would then have them attend maybe a smaller specialist dyslexia setting to address those needs. And that's kind of what happened with me. So we had that intervention of trying to help me in the classroom when I was younger. I always remember having having to stay in at break times, which I found hugely mm. frustrating. And the worst thing. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And then um, the next stage was having a dyslexia teacher coming into my school. And again, that was my lunch breaks gone, which was an awful kind of experience when you're that age and you can see your friends playing outside and you can't go out with them. Mm -hmm. But that didn't really lead to any kind of meaningful progress because I wasn't really generalizing what I learned in that lesson. And then the next stage from that was the decision that I needed to be in an environment where teaching uh, for dyslexia was differentiated in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I went to a school called Appleford, which is um, a specialist dyslexic school. And I did very well there, which allowed me to attend back um, a small mainstream setting later on with a dyslexia unit. But uh, when I say small, I don't think I would have been able to have handled a kind of typical mainstream setting, even one with a dyslexic unit at the time. Um, so sorry, I, 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 I said before we started this podcast that I wasn't going to take it over and I've done exactly that. So <laughs> I'll, I'll throw it back over to Gemma, really. So, yeah. Do you know, actually, I, I mean, I, I don't know, but what I, what I was going to ask you, Adam, and what come up in, you know, when you were talking, what I was thinking is a lot of my clients, and I don't know, um, Gemma, if, if you find this with your with your clients as well that come who have got children with dyslexia, mm. some of them say to me, so they say, I just wish I could see it from his or her point of view you know how mm -hmm. they think how they see the page um what it is that's that they're struggling with so that I can understand mm -hmm. and help in a way are you are you able to articulate that Adam for our parents who have maybe just got a new diagnosis for their for their young ones and you know it's 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 really hard because I remember you know doing stuff like spelling and reading so although we've kind of moved forward, so when I was a young, like teaching people phonics, for instance, mm -hmm. was what you did in a dyslexia school. You didn't really do that within a mainstream environment. So it's great that that's kind of trans transferred into mm -hmm. a kind of mainstream primary setting. Fundamentally, what I remember is not being able to read like everyone else, 
if I was picking up something to read, it was usually something which I would consider for babies at the time, like very basic English, not being able to do any of the spelling and feeling quite embarrassed about it. Um, mm. So I kind of went with that classic dyslexia model, which is be embarrassed about your needs and then therefore become the class clown. And that was my kind of classic thing at school when I was in primary school was to be a bit naughty and mm. just kind of talk back and maybe try and use um, my voice to kind of verbalize my understanding of things that we were learning in class mm. rather than being able to write and, and put it down. And like literally I remember all the strategies you can you can think of being tried with me so having a it was almost like a, a spelling calculator where you you tried your spellings in it and it would tell you if you got them right or wrong um mm. it looked like a calculator anyway mm. it was no use to me and I remember you know the first kind of uh, computer programs coming through and they weren't very helpful to me because I was too young to really understand how mm. they were beneficial I remember a lot of being kind of um, taken to side to to learn with other students who might be struggling like me and this was in the early 90s so I think things have moved on a lot but mm. I remember because I had a, a diagnosis of dyslexia I suppose I got preferential treatment in that kind of small learning environment and the poor student I remember sitting next to me who was clearly dyslexic as well being told off for getting their spellings wrong and mm. I, I think that kind of demonstrates even early on how misunderstood the mm. diagnosis really was. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember being called stupid in the classroom, not really understanding that, being really embarrassed about not being able to to spell or read. Um, the worst, I think, and I think most dyslexic people share this, is being asked to try and read out something in front of your class um, colleagues. Mm. That's really hard because obviously you can't hide it. Um, and the annoying thing for me is actually one of my strengths is actually my reading. But when you're that age, when you're young, so this is when we're about seven or so, whilst I might be able to comprehensively read something and understand it, I might have to kind of break it down in my head. Whereas you can't do that when you're kind of talking in a classroom, you can't break it down. So, you know, you struggle. That's done kind of publicly in front of mm -hmm. everyone. And, you know, you, you feel you feel stupid and, mm -hmm. you know, kids are cruel as well they'll, they'll they'll let you know that they think that too yeah. um so yeah. my way at that stage was kind of I suppose demonstrating that I was knew what was happening and that my understanding of the lesson was to kind of put my hand up and, and kind of answer the questions when we we're talking about stuff like history or geography um but I used to express myself more by I suppose being um considered the naughty child in the classroom mm -hmm. and also I, I was very good at when I was younger at sport so particularly rugby that was my way of kind of expressing that I was good at something and I think that was really vital to me when I was younger and mm. um, when I didn't have that kind of literacy numeracy skill that I required so yeah I, I often say that to parents that it's really key to find something that your child loves and is really good at outside of the classroom or even within the classroom if they may find literacy really tricky they may be amazing at times tables and if we can help that child help another child with their times tables who's finding that more tricky then suddenly their self-esteem can go up mm. or having a having a sport that you really enjoy and the teacher recognising that within the classroom and celebrating that in the school environment is so important for child self-esteem. When, as you're saying, Adam, it's just not constantly by our school system. We're, we're still doing spelling tests every week. It's still part of our kind of curriculum, which seems 
crazy when we know that 10-15% of the population have dyslexia. Um, so within every class, we're talking three to five children are really yeah. struggling with this, yet we're still making them feel low about themselves every week. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think with that, you're kind of putting people off uh, reading and writing for life in those kind of situations mm-hmm. and actually using alternative ways of doing th- things is a way of kind of re-engaging people. So, you know, Saturday and, and me, we've been kind of posting a lot on our Instagram and Facebook account on things like how to kind of get your child into reading and what's out there. And a lot of that is actually based on personal experience. So when I was uh, when I was young and I couldn't read, uh, when I went to bed at night, I used to have an audio tape. Um, and I, that's basically how I, I read or, or listened to a lot of things that I needed to know about at school or, th- or areas of kind of interest. And, you know, that's amazing these days that you have things like audio where you can do that. Um, there's also for little kids, Tony's as well, which my son has as well, which he loves listening to before he goes to bed mm-hmm. at night. And those are all ways of getting people interested in things like reading without having to do anything. Because, you know, when you're reading a, as a child, you're really usually reading stories. Mm-hmm. So you can be interested in that story. You just can't access it because you can't differentiate what the words in the papers say. That doesn't mean that if you don't do it a different way, someone mm-hmm. can't get a real enjoyment out of that. And over time, um, as as we put in the um, in the uh, post, so I say you can do stuff like um, maybe read the story along with the um, actual audio, yeah. um, yeah. and then kind of start recognising those words. Mm. And all of that was stuff that my my parents did with me as a kid because they were always really worried that if I didn't get some enjoyment out of the mm. idea of reading and writing, then I wouldn't want to access it at all. And I think there's a lot of kids out there who feel a lot very pressured at re, um, having to read books at school. And actually, you might be able to find the same book as an audio tape or mm. um, not an audio tape these days. It shows my age, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it's OK. Uh, I, I had cassettes as well. I had audio stories on cassettes yeah. and put it in yeah. a Walkman. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the enjoyment of books like um, Harry Potter, for instance. Mm. Yeah. They're some of the, the first books you, you kind of read as a kind of kind of a kid going from um being a kid to being a teenager mm. and as a dyslexic person you might not be able to access the actual volumes of those books but listening to that is still wonderful it still can mm. bring you through in terms of understanding what's out there and how brilliant it is really mm-hmm. it's a really interesting example my husband's dyslexic and he hasn't ever been able to read a book he just hasn't been able to and he listens to audio books and calls it reading so he'll say oh, I'm reading this great book and I'm like you're listening to it but you're reading it um and he actually the one book he managed to read with it was his his parents reading to him and him reading a little bit but the one book he kind of got through was Harry Potter and to this day it was only one of the books I think it was the first one to this day he is totally obsessed with Harry Potter because it was his first time that he could enter the world of a book yeah. and really actually enjoy it so yeah I think I think being able to access text that can like spark your imagination and not only great for your self-esteem and just enjoyment value but also so good for your language development and your mm. exposure to vocabulary and all of those things that actually come through with reading yeah and I That's think the, the other thing is, yeah, is that there's reading everywhere it doesn't actually even have to be a book or an audio book it can be 
Facebook is reading. You have to repost. You have to read things. Twitter, not so much TikTok, which is seriously sounds like. I don't understand that. Yeah, (laughs) way beyond me. Way beyond me. Um, But you know, there's there's reading everywhere. And if if it is that your child loves Minecraft, get them information about Minecraft, Minecraft magazines, Minecraft blogs on the internet, and reading a blog about Minecraft is so much more motivating than reading something that your teacher just says you should read. Um, yeah. yeah, exploring reading in all places. I agree. Um, Gemma, what, given that, bearing that in mind and the fact that, you know, if if I'm a mum and I can sort of feel like my child isn't maybe progressing in literacy as much as they should be in my mind or I can see that there's a difference between them and their classmates in school um, and I suspect dyslexia what are so several things what are the the common things to look out for mm. from for me as as mum what are what would your advice be like what what should I do mm. like I know that there's there's something that mm. that's going on with my child they're not quite the same as their peers in terms of their literacy. I don't really know what it is. It might be dyslexia, it might not. And, you know, there's always, I mean, especially in this day and age, there's, there's like, I feel like there's a, a competition at schools, like to get mm. the best grades and, the, and the, the constant racing, keeping up with the Joneses. So I'm not, not sure if I can speak to anybody about it. What would your advice be to a mum in that mm. situation? I think... At a young age, one of the key things we see in children with dyslexia who are later diagnosed with dyslexia is difficulty with rhyming. So finding rhyme really tricky when you're three or four um, often is an indicator of having a phonological processing difficulty, which is our main theory of what underpins dyslexia. Um, So that's understanding the letter sounds. So if your child's having difficulties with letter sounds, being able to sound out words as they see them, for example, cat, cat, is cat. Those sounds are fundamental to our reading, but are impaired in children with dyslexia. Um, At a slightly later stage, um, we often see children do letter reversals in their writing or number reversals. So a P becoming a... um, a P becoming a Q or a B becoming a D, those kind of swaps in in, um, the way letters are um, is often an indicator. Um, The other other indicator which is not as obvious as those literacy difficulties is quite often alongside dyslexia, children have working memory difficulties, which is where it's difficult to hold things in their mind. is that kind of post-it note in your brain that holds information for a very short amount of time and then it's gone. You don't need it anymore. And quite often children with dyslexia, their working memory is smaller than other other children their age. So they find it harder to keep little bits of information in their mind and then it, it go away. So that can make things like following multi-step instructions really difficult. Yeah. So if, you, if you say to your child, can you go upstairs and get my phone charger, a cup of tea, and my cardigan, something random, not an everyday routine, just something different to normal. And they come back down with one thing, but you know they've listened. That can be an indicator as well, if there being something going on. And I mean, the best advice, if you think there's something going on, is to listen to your instinct. As a mum, you know your child best. 
And the first thing to do would be to speak to their class teacher and then mm-hmm. speak to the school senko. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think we've all seen in our work is parents who are the advocates for their child. Absolutely. And if you if you know something's not quite right, you've got to keep pursuing that, even if those doors seem quite shut at the time. Yeah. Adam, what um that's really interesting to hear actually as parents being advocates for for their children, because Adam, I know that you your your family when you were really young was has always been the law obviously your, your dad is a barrister and some of our listeners might not know that um and he's a barrister in this area of law and your sister's an educational psychologist so you were I imagine very lucky in that sense but was there anyone at school sort of pointing out your difficulties or advocating for you or even back then for example what did your your parents and your family go through to try and get you the support that you needed it's a really good question actually um so i think the first thing is is it's a kind of running argument in my family about who got who into i suppose education law because <laughs> um i i come actually from a family of 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 dyslexics so there's lots of people in my family who are dyslexic um but that's something we, we discovered in, in latter years not something that we were i suppose very aware of in the early 90s so my older brother Andrew was was diagnosed with dyslexia before me, and actually went to a dyslexic school called East Court, which um, unfortunately no longer exists. Um, but it was a very good school, and he did very well there. So he was before me, and actually how me and Andrew's dyslexia kind of presented when we were younger was different. Um, but I don't think my my dad, who I think was a criminal and a employment barrister at the time would have really understood or or known about special educational needs as an area of law if it hadn't been for me and my brother and having to go through the system which predates the CEN tribunal um, and the struggle dealing with that system which wasn't great at kind of getting the support from my brother before it I suppose turning to me. So you're right like that I was very fortunate that when I was growing up actually my brother had gone before me, so there was, a, I suppose, a template from what my parents were looking out for. But also, um, you know, my father, because he w- became quite a strong advocate for special needs and support, being there from an early um, stage. But, you know, my mother was also incredibly supportive. And I remember my mum always saying to me when I was when I was little is whilst you are dyslexic, that's not an excuse not to try and you should always mm-hmm. try and look at ways that you can do things um, and succeed in different ways and that's always been a kind of fundamental cornerstone to everything I've done um, but I suppose going back to what uh, Gemma was saying um, so I think the first stages of my parents kind of realizing that um, you know I wasn't kind of accessing learning um, was due to my pronunciation of words, as Gemma was saying, I, I had a condition called glue ear, which is quite common with dyslexic people, which means that your ears don't drain properly. Um, and most people, quite a lot of people get glue ear and it kind of disappears, but for some people it doesn't. Um, so having glue ear is, it's, it's like hearing underwater. So you mishear a lot of what people are saying. And obviously you misunderstand what people's are pronouncing because you can't hear what they're saying properly. So a lot of my early words were mispronounced. Um, a lot of my early spelling, because I was hearing the word incorrectly, was was wrong as well. And yeah, I mean, what Jen was saying about rhyming, 
um even to this day if you ask me the lyrics to any song i could mm-hmm. not do that i could probably give you a line but i can do mm-hmm. you more than that mm-hmm. um and um yeah working memory is is obviously an issue and um and yeah i think i'd struggle with the list of things that Gemma said to go and get from upstairs now mm-hmm. uh, if i didn't have a, a phone and, and load of kind of um strategies in place now to kind of deal with that um but you know it's it's tough when you're going through that process i'm very very aware about how lucky i am in the sense of the family that i was born into that there was that understanding and there was that support there um and that's partly why i'm so kind of passionate about what we do um, at geldard so much is because i'm aware about how many people go through the system or don't go through the system and should who don't have the support that i do and did and and need it um there's always been a corner skirt stone to what i do and why for me practicing in in special educational needs law as a practice is such a vocation for me so yeah do you know what's what's really funny what i, what I wanted to ask you Gemma, actually having worked with adam for the past year mm. obviously he's got severe dyslexia and he does struggle with some things mm. but there are other skills that he has that mm. he finds other ways of doing things mm. and he'll remember things i'm like where did that come from so you know and it's I, I always find that my clients always say that with um, any of my children who have got dyslexia, they'll say, Do you know, the things that he comes up with or the things that she that she does or that there's usually something that they excel mm-hmm. in. I mean, is that because they're using a different part of their brain? Is it because they've just got used to um, focusing on something else? Is there sort of any explanation for that or? Do you know what I think one of is is interesting because obviously Adam's job is all around communication. You have to communicate both with clients, with judges, with all sorts of people. And actually that's one of the skills we often see that's really strong in children or adults with dyslexia is communication. And quite often it's because writing is difficult. The focus is on all communication. So they've actually been able to practice that skill more mm-hmm. than a child who is writing um, more easily, let's say. Um, so communication can be a real strength. There's also lots of people with dyslexia who have visual and creative yes. talents. Um, that part of their brain really excels. And it's amazing to see, I think the stats, something like, out of the kind of general population um, is about eight to 10% become high business owners. But when they look at how many high business owners are dyslexic, it's around 20%. Yeah. So that creativity and that kind of thinking outside the box really comes, comes together with dyslexia and can be such a strength for so many people. And I, I feel that one of, as an educational psychologist, one of my key roles when I'm working with children is to make them see that yeah. and make the child themselves from a really young age realize it's not a barrier it's it's something that we're going to overcome it's a speed bump we're going to get over it yeah. but you need a little bit of help to get there and we're going to give you that help but but you've got so many strengths and you've got so many talents um, and to really emphasize that it's not a barrier to them achieving what they want to achieve in their life as Adam's shown us in his story. Yeah, I mean, if, if you could see me in this podcast, I'm blushing a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's a really interesting one when I talk to people about it. I think with dyslexic people, 
because that you know they experience I suppose failure at a very early stage and they have to sit there and think well mm-hmm. how do I deal with this so I'm actually kind of getting on top of this issue and problem what are the strategies I need to do that because they're doing that from early stage mm-hmm. a lot of people I think they don't really experience I suppose failing at anything until they are adults and it's usually when mm-hmm. they're in a, a work environment and they really struggle kind of uh, I suppose emotionally and mentally to mm-hmm. deal with that um, whereas if you're always having to th- kind of think outside of the kind of normal ways of doing things it makes you kind of very mm-hmm. versatile and mm-hmm. uh, certainly the thing I've learned over the years is I can't compensate for everything myself so when I've always looked at kind of working with people and bringing people into the team that I work with I'm always looking for people who have the skills that I don't mm-hmm. um, what I've noticed I suppose as an adult is actually a lot of workplaces if you bring someone into a team who has a skill that you don't a lot of people can feel quite intimidated by that whereas I don't have a choice I've, I've got to have that skill in the team because mm-hmm. I don't have it so I always mm-hmm. think that dyslexia is a very good uh, particularly I suppose you're saying Gemma in kind of business and stuff uh, mm-hmm. having to kind of cooperate with people and mm-hmm. um, have to kind of be good managers because they don't they, otherwise they can't do what they're doing and I think that's a really important skill yeah. so and that resilience is so key we see in all special needs children for the variety of different needs that they may have so many um, of those children have such a strong resilience that perhaps other children who don't have to go through the same struggles that they've gone through have and that that resilience really does set you up for life it is something that you that that helps you in just your personal relationships your work situations all, all kind of things and so yeah I think resilience comes into well, definitely one of the strengths associated with dyslexia I think I think um I, I think I agree I think I see that and I see that in lots of my clients and their children and obviously Adam but you know like I've listened to other podcasts obviously we all do um and I know all three of us we were talking about this before this podcast listen to the um the new dragon Stephen Bartlett's podcast and I was listening to the one with him and the um owner of Soho House and he's dyslexic mm. he's severely dyslexic mm. and part of his story was sort of trying something it not working trying something it not working and this constant sort of failure get back up on your feet but in terms of having um I don't think he had a diagnosis you know up as early maybe as Adam did for example but Gemma what's is does it make a difference if you have an earlier diagnosis versus maybe a, a diagnosis later when you're in your teens what does that gap does it make a difference how does it make a difference it's, it really does because we know that early intervention is best we know that children with dyslexia the normal class teaching for reading and writing is generally not sufficient as Adam says maybe a differentiated approach could work or they need a specialist approach but the general approach of the classroom isn't going to work in in the right way for them so the problem that I see in my teenagers when I'm if I see someone who's say 14 or 15 and really struggling with their GCSEs and then suddenly when I'm doing an assessment we're then seeing that dyslexia is underpinning it the difficulty is is that they still are struggling with decoding actually saying the words themselves because they haven't had the intervention 
from the right people at an earlier age. They're still struggling to read the words themselves, which means you can't comprehend what you've read. So you could be in a, I don't know, religious studies exam that feels totally unrelated to literacy and struggle to read those questions because you can't, you can't decode the words and therefore you can't comprehend what you're reading. Or if you're decoding, it's so unfluent, it doesn't, it's not, it's still such an effortful process that your brain's exhausted. It can't, mm-hmm. it can't understand what it's read because it's used all its energy just trying to read the words themselves. And it gets to GCC point. And luckily we're in the day and age where technology is absolutely key. It mm-hmm. is just phenomenal for people with dyslexia and is definitely the way forward. Um, but it does mean that they have missed all those opportunities to learn those key reading skills and spelling skills that a more specialist approach would have given them. Yeah. So I think I think sort of the advice would be because I know sometimes, you know, we have parents that come to us a little bit later on, maybe just thought I just thought that she'd get used to it. You know, I thought mm-hmm. that we'd, we'd be able to help and whatnot. But that that specialist especially with with our females I think Adam I think the anxiety as well and the social um paranoia and the feeling that you're that you're stupid and you're different from your peers especially when you know puberty kicks in and you're a young adult etc um we see that a lot don't we Adam with especially with our with boys and girls but I find that the anxiety is especially yeah. a, a lot more with girls yeah I mean it's a real hard one isn't it because talking about people very kind of general is difficult but we do see patterns with with boys with dyslexia dyslexia you tend to find that they tend to be to act out um, become Mm. a bit of a class clown refuse to do the work make it very very clear that they can't access the information and that usually actually leads to them getting intervention quicker actually than than Mm. girls with dyslexia so what we tend to see, and obviously this goes all, only on the work we do, it, it's, yeah. you know, there's no kind of a scientific theory, well, I'm not aware of it anyway. No. But what we tend to find with, with girls with dyslexia is there's an embarrassment about not being able to read and write, mm. but because they're really intelligent, they know mm. that they, they understand what's being said in the classroom, for instance, but they may not be able to translate that into um, onto paper. Mm. So what you tend to find is lots of masking behaviour to kind of hide the fact that actually mm. they're not accessing the classroom lesson at all. The damage with that is you tend to find that girls with dyslexia are picked up much later than than boys. And by that stage, um, the I suppose the difficulty is, is become even wider. Um, the gap between their peers has got wider. But you're just actually just addressing the emotional impact of someone's inability to access the classroom and the anxiety they feel about that and also the anxiety they feel about potentially their friends or family seeing how far behind they are and thinking of them as being stupid or uh, or not being able to learn Mm -hmm. that i think the kind of social consciousness from girls over dyslexia and worrying about what other people will think of them is something which we see quite a lot in cases and can really impact on um a, a, a child's engagement at all in any kind of education. Mm. Um, it's a really difficult one because I don't think there is any kind of scientific assessments that I, I am aware of, which actually looks at that kind of 
differentiality in terms of, I suppose, uh, experiences. Mm. So we can only talk about it, me and, and Salah say, from experience, but that's certainly mm. something we see. Yeah. So. I think there's there's quite a lot of research that's showing that um, quite often children with dyslexia can be diagnosed with ADHD perhaps incorrectly because of acting out as a result of their difficulties um, or also the kind of inattention for, for example staring out the window if you can't access the lesson if you can't access when the teacher's saying copy down what's on the board read what's on the board and copy it down in your books you're going to look out the window because what else are you meant to do or or you're going to kind of play up or talk to your friends because you're struggling to to complete that task it's so so difficult for a child or young person to put their hand up and say I need help we assume that children can do that easily it's a huge thing to be able to do especially once you get to secondary school and then there's the social kind of implications of doing so as well so um yeah just Quite often children can, it can seem like there's another disorder going on when actually fundamentally if their literacy was stronger and and wasn't as difficult for them, we wouldn't be seeing the behaviours we're seeing. Um, Unfortunately, there's really, there's also lots of research about within the young offending communities how how high the rates of dyslexia are, which really show us that without the right support, the negative pathways that can come unfortunately as a result of not getting the support because you can't access learning if you don't have the right support yeah yeah and I think it's the it doesn't matter um what kind of gender you are I think it's that kind of experience of being failing and being Mm. told that I mean the amount of times I got told I was a daydreamer and stupid um that I wasn't going to do well kind of academically Mm. I mean I could probably count on my hands more the amount of times that someone actually said to me, um, you know, you are going to do well. You just need to kind of get the basics in there and you'll you'll get there eventually. I wish I'd heard more of that when I was when I was a kid. I didn't. A lot of the kind of feedback I got from my actually my peers and my teachers was the kind of things that you would hope you would never hear. Um, I do think we got we we have got a lot better with that and understanding mm. dyslexia but going back to Gemma's example like being in a classroom of 30 and kind of putting your hands up and saying really sorry I don't understand any of what you you put I can't follow the lesson that's a really huge thing to expect a child to do mm. um, if we put it in a different context how many times do you think people do that in an office environment when they can't they don't know what they should do um, it doesn't happen you know, mm. because they're embarrassed for the same reasons. Mm. Um, and I think we have to be better at understanding that and understanding that uh, we need to pick up on the, the kind of early signs of d- dyslexia as quickly as possible. And I think mm. that comes down to really good kind of training of staff and maybe mm. training teachers during their kind of teacher training yeah. about the condition, the kind of signs of it and how to kind of address it um, or at least flag post in the right direction where you've identified someone who you think might have those difficulties. Mm. And yes, all teachers should probably st- already start doing that. But if they're not educated and trained in understanding dyslexia mm. in the first place, how are they supposed to do that? Um, I wanted to actually it might be it might be a good sort of place to um, 
to draw to sort of like a final question because I always ponder in my head and I'd, I'd be really interested to hear both of your views actually there was a suggestion in the last six months I imagine um you know around that's a lot, of, lot, lot of politics going on in the last six months but there was a suggestion at one point um about mandatory testing for dyslexia in all schools at a certain age um, I was wondering what you both thought of that and whether you thought it was a good idea. So I'll go I'll go with you, Gemma, first from a professional point of view. We've got nothing to lose by doing that. What have yeah. we got to lose by trying to identify children? Yes, the screening tool may be wrong. So what? Why not why not explore it further? The, the only the only negative impact of screening children for having those difficulties is the time and the cost involved and actually our children deserve us to spend that time and put that cost in into them um i've i've had many a time there is a screener that some schools do use and i've had many children come to me for assessments as a result of that screener and sometimes yes it's dyslexia and sometimes it's something else that's underpinning it but then we can find out what that is yeah. Um, I, I personally don't see the negative of doing that. I mean, I, I agree with Gemma. I think the other thing is, is if you don't have screeners like that, then we have a, a kind of repeat and broken wheel where you're kind of dealing with a situation where kids are either being mis, um, considered to have other needs like oppositional defiance or ADHD when mm -hmm. they don't, where they are kind of completely disengaging from learning when they don't have to. And ultimately, if you kind of get that provision in early, as, as Gemma was saying earlier, the outcomes for someone with uh, dyslexia are, are, are really good. The mm -hmm. outcomes of any child with special educational needs with early in intervention mm -hmm. is pretty amazing. So any kind of screening or assessment where you're kind of doing that early on, I think is good. I mean, we spend a lot of time with things like doing SATs and stuff like that. Yeah. I personally prefer us to be in a situation where we're identifying kids with needs as early as possible and putting into right mm -hmm. intervention then worrying too much about them achieving a certain amount and a certain assessment so yeah. yeah i agree i agree um and i think one of the main reasons i agreed apart from sort of doing this for a living and loving loving what i do is even now i've got for example two friends now i'm not an educational psychologist but i know i'm pretty certain that they're both of them presenting their different ways just from text messages and sometimes you know I'll get my friend will have to read something like a contract for example that someone sent her from work and I'll get phone calls from her and she'll be like you're going to have to help me with this because I just I, I can't I can't process it I don't know what you're saying it's a 10-page document that I'm going to have to read at least two or three times to understand I've got another friend text messages come you know from him and it's very clear, like you said, the the B's and the D's, if they've written something, they'll avoid it altogether. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think I always get a bit sad. And I think if I could, if you were children, like and we could go back in time and I could help you like I'm helping the, the children that come to us now. I wonder where you would have been in life because they both rejected school, for example, because of those reasons, because they couldn't follow or they were daydreaming or acting out. Um, mm -hmm whatever it was this that's actually the other way around one of them the, the my boyfriend was a um daydreamer and my girlfriend was um was the one that was that would act out so it was the other way around but um I always think that, that like you said Gemma um there's no there's no negative to mm. the mandatory testing what would there be apart from the time of the money a better understanding of the need itself is really important like um mm. 
do you know it's funny a friend of mine said to me the other day that um they they used to be on dating apps and they used to turn people down if their spelling and grammar was terrible oh. and then they said to me but then i i i'd experienced you on uh, on on whatsapp and i decided that if if you can be a lawyer with your spelling and grammar <laughs> then then i can give these people a chance and i just thought that was a great example of how the stigma of of dyslexia and and kind of not being able to i suppose read and write properly has made this kind of understanding that people must be stupid if they can't um mm. which is just nonsense um if you get the right provision in there earlier on enough you can put really good strategies in place and i think mm. once you as a as someone with dyslexia the more you understand about yourself and your difficulties the more you can compensate for that as long mm. as you accept the difficulty yourself and that's another thing I'm talking about almost 40 having a, a lifetime of resisting my my own diagnosis and thinking um, that other people should be more accommodating than they probably were and I think it's the acceptance that people are going to misunderstand the need mm. and you needing to be the one to kind of put the strategies in place not expecting other people just to do it for you which has been kind of how an important lesson for me and I think for most people really so yeah um, Thankfully, I've, I've been married for, for over um, 10 years, so I don't have to worry about the dating app things. But God, I, I feel sorry for any dyslexic person on those. I'd never thought of that. I'd never thought of that implication of, yeah, that's so going to be so hard for my teenagers growing up. You know, I've, I've heard the same thing from a friend of mine who said something about the, the spelling. And um, I did say, well, what if the person's got dyslexia? And they, and they were like, oh, I <laughs> yeah. Maybe. But um, yeah, thankfully, Adam, you didn't have to go through that. <laughs> no, but I, the, the only thing I'd leave with it is just it shows you how quickly people can judge you on stuff like that and yeah, wrongly. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Yeah. I, I, and people make a big thing about grammar, about there and there. I've heard a lot of, yeah, a lot of judgments about when the grammar, uh, the tenses are. Yeah, there, there and there, yeah. Or, I, know, um, I know. Pacific I know. or specific. That's another one that people, I think, um, if you get wrong people can be very unforgiving about um stuff like that as well so yeah but you just think in um if you were i mean talking about the dating side of it seems we're on the topic um if you were in if you just meet someone in the street or at a bar or wherever people used to meet back when social media didn't exist um you would never know that about a person and you, it would just be based on the communication so it's just you think it's it's a little bit unfair and um yeah. it really doesn't make any difference at all um, no, in, and, in reality, and we've been we've been terrible about technology. But actually, I always say to to um, young adults and, and kids that I meet with dyslexia, there has never been a better time to be dyslexic. Mm -hmm. I I wish I had things like voice notes on my phone when I was growing mm -hmm. up or predictable text. None of that existed. There was so much. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's not perfect. Um, you still have to be able to be able to check over things. Um, but just having those kind of avenues, it, it, it kind of is life life changing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Gemma and Adam, thank you so much, both of you, for uh, for joining us today. I'm sure that our listeners um, have, are really grateful and have learned a lot. I've learned a lot from this discussion. So I, th I thank both of you um, for, for opening up as well, Adam, from your perspective and Gemma, for you for sharing your, your knowledge with us. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having us.